a Steve Mathis production. Check it out, Pulp MX fans. We're proud to announce iPhone users can now get the official Pulp MX app from the App Store and have archives, show drops and technical info, stories, and even exclusive bonus Pulpcasts not available anywhere else. As always, use the Mathis code at btosports.com. And when buying from Amazon, click the banner on pulpmx.com to show your support. episode of the Steve Mathis show there is a high chanceability you will either learn something a lot of people don't know you left thinking or make you say to yourself dude that's so funny the bottom line is this podcast serves as archival documentation of this interview welcome to the racer x podcast show brought to you by btosports.com hosted by Steve Mathis Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast show. I'm your host as usual, Steve Mathis, and with me on the line is my usual guests. We are, we're doing this on a 7.22 on a Wednesday night, so if anybody wants to give us a shit about not putting overtime in, here we are, putting overtime in. Um, on the line, Jason Wygant. It's 10.22 here on the East Coast, yeah. Yeah, 10.22, and the man's got a baby. A wife, and he has to drive to Morgantown tomorrow, and yet he's still doing this. I just need something to listen to on the drive tomorrow, so I figured <laughs> if we do a podcast tonight, I'll have something to kill the time. Do you actually ever listen to the podcast? You don't listen to your, the ones you're in or on, do you? No, not at all. No, okay. All right. I already know they're worthless by the time we're done. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as usual on the other line is the man who uh, really brings us credentials to the show and really brings the knowledge, uh, David Pingree. Yes. 7:22 here, but um, mm-hmm. my wife's not happy about it. You know, mine's family down- time right mm-hmm. now. Mine's downstairs. So. Uh, doesn't didn't seem to be happy either when I said, "Hey, I'm trudging upstairs to do a podcast." Didn't didn't get a smile and a wave, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so. Okay, what do we all have in common here? Why are we doing this? Let's move on. <laughs> all right. Well, we don't. If we were have- smart. We'd all go inside and. <laughs> uh, well, the end of our show. I got a green card. What's your guys' excuse? Um, uh, all right. Hey, we don't really have a topic to talk about tonight uh, as far as the current racing stuff, but myself and Wygant were kicking around some ideas, and maybe this will be a little bit of a free-flowing uh, a podcast, but I really want to start off with, and I, and I can't get enough of these stories from Wygant especially, uh, about when we were younger going to the pro races. Uh, Jason, you flagged at Englishtown. We all know that story. Um, with the mighty legendary, what's his what's his name? The flagger. Oh, ultimate. Ultimate with the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate the flagger. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and then of course, uh, Ping, you've been around it your whole life, as I have, as have I, and I got some good stories. But I thought we'd start with uh, with you, Wygant. Um, Supercross. Uh, you born and raised in New Jersey. Supercross came to Meadowlands a few times. Um, did you go to those races? Did you go to those Supercrosses? 
Oh, yeah, there were four of them, 87, 88, 89. Um, wait, no, 90, There's 91. One of 91 because I watched five. it. I, yeah. I, did, that's, I did bad math there. Um, but I think this is something that it's kind of strange when you – eventually end up working in the industry. There's Apparently, at some point, there's some transition where you go from going in the race as a fan to going because you're supposed to as a job. But the transition is so smooth. You know, I don't – it's not like there's a certain year where I can think, well, I didn't really know what was going on because I wasn't working for Racer X yet. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. When you grow up as a fan, you pretty much feel like every season is the same and you followed it and you lived and died by it and you knew which guys were cool and you knew which guys you didn't like all the same. Um, so it's kind of weird how that transition works, and it'll be interesting to hear from you guys on that. For me, um, yeah, like 86, 87 was the first time I was really getting into motocross. I was probably like seven, eight years old at the time. And, you know, not just into it like dirt bikes, but knowing who was who and pulling for certain guys at the races. And then in 87, they uh, announced they were going to have a Supercross in New York, which is actually New Jersey. New York football giants and New York football jets play in New Jersey. The stadium is in New Jersey. The race is in New Jersey, okay? Mm-hmm. So I was excited because I thought Mickey Kessler, who was dominator at Englishtown, right. and had actually challenged Bob Hanna in the summer of 86 at a race there, right. was going to you know, show everybody what's up, maybe race the one local. I didn't realize it doesn't really work that way. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, you don't like just race the one local race and get a podium and then not do the rest of the rounds. You're either good or you're not. So he didn't even race, and I remember we were in the stands. We had uh, good seats, courtesy of the fine folks at Bell Ray, New Jersey-based company, and I saw him in the stands in street clothes. Mickey, yeah. Yeah, and he was still national number 56, I think, that year. Yeah. So still, you know, not, not retired by any right, means. Right, right. Uh, so I was just very upset. Yeah, you're like, but, Sitting but in the stands, Mickey, giving up. Mickey, you, you belong out there with RJ. You could beat these guys. Right. Um, so it was cool, and, and here's the little thing that sticks in your mind, and I'm sure people listening to this will remember this type of deal. Like at one point, this is the weird thing about Supercross in the 80s. The riders would just come out after the heat races and just walk the track. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. Like now yeah. now you're penned up in your rig. I don't even know if it's allowed. You, you wouldn't even be allowed to walk. No, on yeah, you're field, not right? allowed. No, you're not allowed to. No. No. So I remember the heat race. I believe RJ won his heat race, and then he came out somewhere around intermission to like walk the track. And he had this all-aqua gear on. Didn't have it on in practice, didn't have it on in the heat. Yeah. Had all-aqua gear on at this point, had switched gear. It looked badass. And yeah. then the fans were, like, reaching over the stands, and he was signing autographs. And I don't know what semi or LCQ was going on, but no one was watching that. <laughs> he was watching RJ in the corner of the stadium, probably a well, good yeah. well, probably a good 18,000 oh, people this in the is, stands. Oh, like, heats and, or like semis and LCQs were going on, he was out. Yeah, that's what you're saying. That the most oh. Yes, I don't know how this worked. Like, it was like I remember you used to be able to walk at like uh, before the show started. You know, like six forty-five or something. Early your mid mid nineties when I kind of first started, they'd let us walk out and look at the whoops and stuff like that. And now, if you try to go out there before your heat race, I mean, there's a big dude with the beard, and he pretty much like shuts yeah. you down. Yeah, you're not getting anywhere. No, no. I'm but you're saying he was actually out there cruising around during yeah. sessions. Yeah. I believe there was funny. the rule was there were no rules. Like if you wanted to go, like you couldn't stand on the track. Like he was over behind the starting but gate. RJ um, probably could stand on the track back then. Only maybe, RJ. maybe. Yeah. I don't think there were any rules at all. It was like, well, they're here. They have a credential. Go ahead if you want to look at the track <laughs> during the races. Yeah, why not? Yeah. So 
I just remember that was a cool thing. And <clears throat> Matt, this is going to hurt you, but for some reason I wasn't into Lachine at this point. Oh, and yeah. my only hope was that Lachine would not win. I didn't want to see him win the first Supercross ever really? win. That was it. Yeah. And he was, lead, uh, he was leading actually a couple laps early. And then uh, the, the your favorite section, the over-under jump, he, cried, he washed out coming out of it. Ooh. Yeah, and R.J. got the lead and the win. I was pumped. R.J. probably would have tracked him down anyways back then. Did you, uh, did you go to the pits? No, I didn't even think about going to the pits. Yeah, never like, did any even, of that. Never did any didn't of that. Even, didn't even cross my mind. The best hookup we had, it, it was weird how the Bell Ray thing worked because my dad worked for him, and then like for a few years they wouldn't really be that involved, and one year they'd be super into it. Uh, kind of like now, you know, <laughs> yeah. if you worked for Bell Ray in 2010, you didn't get anything. And all of a sudden, 2011, points leader is your guy. Yeah. So in 89, they actually made such a big deal that they had Jeff Ward come to the Bell Ray office, which I doubt Chad Reed's even done that, but they haven't had a race a half hour from the office either. Yeah. Wardy come, um, came to the office. Wardy came into the office. So they were going to have a big, everyone in the office gets to meet Jeff Ward. But I think everyone in the office <laughs> is like, so who's that? <laughs> you know, these people, you know, they just work at a company. It's not right, like right. Yeah. they're motorcycle enthusiasts. They work at an oil company. So I think they pretty much just set it up for me because um, <laughs> they were like, we're going to go. He's going to be in this room and go in here. And there was like no one in line, like no one even going in there. <laughs> Poor Wardy. He's just yeah, sitting there going, like, what am I doing? Jeff, here? this young man coming to the door right now is your biggest fan. But you and I swear, I swear they had him set up. Like the bad guys in the movies, like where the bat, the big black back of the chair, you could only see the back of the chair and yeah. like the hand like caressing a kitten. <laughs> and, and he spun he around. Was, he was, I remember all this like it was yesterday. You could only see the back of the chair and on the TV a Supercross is playing. And they're like, Jeff is currently watching the 1983 Super Bowl of motocross, a race that to this day he says he can remember every single lap. And it had highlights of the race with the song I Love L.A. playing. <laughs> <laughs> like the evil dictator. Just oh, you could so, not see him, just the back of the chair and him studying. So he didn't turn around and meet you, or eventually he did? He I, finally did. Right. They explained, and then, man, I was super nervous, and there was no one else to even, like, small talk or break the ice because I was the only one that I went into this yeah. Jeff Ward room. So I was like, yeah, I've seen you at Unadilla. And I watch you on tapes, and I've seen you beat other guys. I remember I said that. I've seen you beat other guys. And then Wardy at his best modesty said, well, sometimes. I try at least. And then everybody laughed. And that was cool. Um, were was, you, that, uh, hey, was that the year where there's like this photo that stuck in my head from the Meadowlands of Wardy off like a finish line tabletop or something with his foot out in the air? Like he's going to land and go into a corner. Yeah, that, that photo's from 87, Meadowlands. Yep. Uh, well, for some yeah. reason, that was like, no one did that. that. That was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. You remember that? Like even Dogger, when he would do his no-legger, that was so sick. Yeah. Yeah. And now if somebody did it, you'd be like, what is that coop doing? It's almost like goon riding. So, well, again, when you flagged at English Town, you were older then, right? The, this, was, this was after the Supercrosses. Oh, yeah. This is, uh, that was, that right. was 10 years later. I was right. in college at that point. When, when you flagged English Town and you had the Kawasaki Race of Champions, I mean, was that just your pinnacle? Because all the factory guys would come? I mean, was that? It was actually, the, the pinnacle was before in the mid-90s, before I was old enough. I was okay. waiting to get, become old enough to become a flagger. Um, and I would just go to the English Town races as a fan. And uh, I remember in, I think, 94... Uh, 
what would happen is that the factory guys, this is so hard to believe now, would race the English Town race. Yeah. Like, yeah. if you ride Kawasaki, there's one other race you have to do, and it's yeah. on the exact opposite end of the country from uh, California, and you're not getting 50 grand in start money for this one like you will in Europe. Yeah, and, and, and it would always end up in a first-turn crash or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one, I do remember Lachine in maybe 88 or something like that. I swear he fell in the first turn, and then by the end of the first lap, he was like in third. Yeah, and you know they're all hungover because they went to New oh, York City. Well, you know, one of them at least. <laughs> um, so then a couple of first turn crashes, and then for like a year or two, they would only come and sign autographs, and they'd be. I think Carmichael started or Emig started riding it again, and then it then it would go badly, and then the guys would stop. And um, in like '94, Kudrowski and LaRocca were only there signing autographs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'd had really good seasons outdoors. LaRocca won a title, and it. Looked like they were going to give McGrath a run in Supercross, so I wanted to be a journalist and get the scoop. So LaRocco, as you know, the effervescent personality, yes, yes, <laughs> signing autographs, just a furrowed brow, and his. <laughs> remember the mid '90s hats, the hats that had like no structure to the top of them. It was like the roundest build hat you could get. Yeah, they were they were like a chef's hat almost. <laughs> yeah, he had one of those, so you couldn't even really see him. Like he was just buried in that hat, and. I was in the autograph line, and I was just trying to get up the courage. And I finally, when I got to him, I was like, you're going to work on those starts this year? <laughs> nice. And you'd never yeah. heard that before. Good one. <laughs> I thought I was, like, really insightful. Like, Good wow, one. this guy really knows his stuff. Yeah, yeah. This fan knows what's up. You're going to work on your starts this year. But I, think, I don't know if he answered the question. I think, like, LaRocco just kind of gave a grunt or something. Right, right. And then punched Kradowski. <laughs> yeah, but ghost wrote into him. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. So um, when you went but, to the Meadowlands races, you never went in the pits? You never wanted to go see these guys? I don't think – I swear, this sounds ridiculous, but I don't know if I thought that was like a thing you could do. Oh. I don't think I thought that was a thing you were allowed to do. Like you could go to the pits. Like isn't that where they work? Um, you have to understand I had a very skewed view of the sport. Like where most people think it's like so easy, uh, what's so hard about it? Like I was always told – don't even touch a dirt bike because it's dangerous and it'll kill you. And um, these guys are the best athletes on the planet. So unless you are like, unless you're killing everyone in every sport and gym class, you definitely aren't a good enough athlete to ride a dirt bike. Yeah, forget definitely. It. <laughs> yeah, until like later on when I would go to English Town, I'm like, dude, these guys are like barely getting out of first gear. Like they're yeah. not the elite of the elite, but they still <laughs> right. choose to race a dirt bike. It can be done. <laughs> it's it's physically possible to anybody to get on a motorcycle and kick it over and start riding. There was this kid we used to have in gym class. They used to have these these standards set where, like, if you did, like, 10 pull-ups, you were in the 90th percentile of, like, a 12-year-old and all this stuff, right? And this one kid, Adam Johnson, like, dominated. He was the best at Little League. He was the best on our school basketball team. And I was like, if I was as good as Adam Johnson at those sports, maybe I could ride a dirt He probably got all the chicks, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and but I figured that was it. Like there was one person in my yep. school that even was born with the talent to ride a dirt bike. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, my point is like it was all too big for me. Like you couldn't ride a bike, right. and the idea that you could go to the pits, like these guys are working. You can't go down there. Oh, yeah. Not see, allowed. I was like, it was it was unbelievably loose back then. You, oh. It was just a few box fans. You could anybody could bum could walk in up the street and sit down next to Wardy and just start chilling. Yeah, and they would just—they they couldn't really sit in their box vans because the mechanics going in and out, and 
So they would have a lawn chair up next to their box van. It was just a streamer in front, like, sort of saying, hey, here's the streamer. Please don't step over this. Um, you know, and, and that was it. It was, it was, yeah. I just remember seeing all the – first time I went to the pits, first time I ever went to a, a Supercross race was uh, 1989 Atlanta, and then I went 89 Miami, which was the Bradshaw Sand Race. Ooh, that was, you was the, the only person there. Yeah, it was not good. It was either the race before or after Atlanta. I don't know which one was first, but – we went in the pits like all day and just we got all the autographs. I remember RJ signing a clutch lever. Someone gave him a clutch lever and he signed the. He was really trying to write tiny on the clutch lever and, I mean, we just saw all the guys. Like it was it was incredible for a guy from Canada. Like I couldn't believe it. I actually raced Atlanta Supercross Amateur Day. Riders meeting was at like four in the morning on Saturday. What was the temperature? Oh yeah, it was cold, super cold. And uh, and I raced I raced against Renard and Demant in the eighty class and I got smoked, and uh, I think it was Demant but Renard for sure, and um, <clears throat> after that then the pits opened and we just hung out it was, it was incredibly yeah it, you, these guys just hung out they just sat around, it was weird. I did in uh, eighty nine for whatever reason again that was the year Bell Ray was super into it. We did get to go into whatever like the VIP suite was or something like that. And uh, Tony D was in there, and then Tony D and my dad like met, and then they started hitting it off. And then wow, two weeks, yeah. And then like I don't know, they I don't know what they were talking about, but anyway, like two or three weeks later, uh, we go to a local race in Englishtown. Tony D was this is before he got hurt, so he was still he would right. just come out and like dominate like the forty plus class. Like <clears throat> I, I swear, at like forty some, if Tony D was racing the A class, he might have been the fastest guy there that day. Uh, and we're walking through the pits, and I'm like, hey, there's that guy Tony D we saw a couple weeks ago. And he turns, recognizes my dad, and goes, Hey, Brian, can you do me a favor? Could you take this hose and wash my back off? <laughs> wow. So my dad washed Tony D's back. So that's my dad's like claim to fame now. And whenever. Can you imagine? Ping, can you, can you imagine? Random uh, man. Just, he had a garden hose hooked up to, I don't know, a pressure right. washer or something. And he right. asked a random guy pretty much walking by, Hey, can you wash my back? Wow. One time, Chicken Matasevich asked me to trim his pubes. I was so pumped. It's, it's, <laughs> Wait a minute. I mean, you might need to give us the context. Can you, can, you wash, can you wash my back? I mean, good God. I mean. He was muddy, man. He couldn't reach. Oh, jeez. Uh, Ping, you probably have a different uh, story because even though you're from Montana, I imagine throughout your whole life you were this hotshot 80 kid or – 60 kid, right? I mean... No. No. No? Way off. Oh. No. Uh, I, I was, like, pretty awesome on a 60 in the wow. state of Montana. <laughs> you know, like, if you lived in Montana, North Dakota, uh, I had you covered. Like, I was the fastest. I mean, I think I won four, four state high country motocross association state championships. But... um that means like very little. There, there's nobody, you know, yeah. it's just a bunch of knuckleheads up there. Not knuckleheads, just a bunch of good old boys that you like... only ride about four months out of the year because it's blistering cold or mud. Right. Um, so very much a, just a summer hobby, right? And so Steve, I told you, that's why I asked you earlier, there's a, a rider by the name of Steve Visser, this Canadian guy who, What'd you say he was like? Maybe a top ten? Yeah, I think he got. A, I think he got number seven or eight a couple of years or one year or something. Yeah. Well, 
for me at, you know, seven years old or whatever, when he would come down, yeah. it was like the whole earth stopped spinning. This guy was like, the, he was so unbelievably fast. And smooth, you know, we sit there and watch us. Oh, man, I can't yeah. believe how fast he is. Oh, yeah, you're just like, this guy is just phenomenal. Yeah, oh. I really never saw. That was the fastest rider I ever saw until I moved to Phoenix. What's I that? never went to a Supercross when I lived there, nothing. And I moved to Phoenix when I was 10. So um, what? I'd already been racing six years, you know. You never heard of a rider named Bill Stork? Yeah, I've heard the name, but. Yeah. When I raced, when I was coming up, Bill Stork was from either South Dakota or Montana or somewhere, and he was the fastest thing up in that mid-north central area. I mean, What Bill, years was that? This would have been 89, 90, 91, 92. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was gone. By oh. 86, I was gone. Oh, okay, yeah. Bill Stork, you know, the big battles were between our top pros in Canada and Bill Stork. You know, it was basically Canada uh. versus USA. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, wow. So, when Ping, when was your first pro race, that Supercross? So, or? I, I I moved to Phoenix and started hitting, like, the World Mini and, like, a couple of Golden State races, and I would just get thrashed, just completely shellacked. You're like, hey, boys, go, check me out. Well, I'm from Montana. I got four <laughs> four big sky titles, and then just uh, see you later. Dude, I'm telling you, I would freak out so bad because I'm used to racing with six, seven, eight kids. Yeah, yeah. And you go to the World Mini, and it's just 42 guys elbow to elbow, you know, and if you remember that old world when we started, it was like 400 miles an hour down that long straightaway into that left off a ski jump. It was like something evil can evil would jump the Snake River Canyon off of. You guys, do you remember that track, the old and out no, in Boulder? Never, I never, I never went, never oh. went there. Anyway, uh, yeah, I would just get dealt with. So, I didn't, the first Supercross I ever went to was in Phoenix, and I want to, I want to say it was 86. But it might have been 87. It was one of those two years. 86 Phoenix was probably the worst supercross track in the history of the sport. I've watched that race a few times. They Unbelievably bad. As, as, uh, as the uh, takeoffs, the triples. Right. Like semi-trailer trailers. You know what I'm saying? Like flatbed trailers. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, just that's laid down very, with dirt on them. Very, very common in Canadian racing. Uh, Isn't is that the one where they had the, like that 10-foot table that no one could get over <laughs> except Lachine? I don't think so because I don't remember a ten a tra- footer. I, I don't. I don't remember. A, I don't remember a trailer truck semi oh, that race. True. But why can't we watch that race together? Yes, and there was a finish line tabletop, and the guys could. I mean, they just struggled. They, Lachine was downsizing it and pretty much smoking everybody. Well, I can't remember what year it is. I, I'm pretty sure. Sun Devil I'm Stadium. Pretty sure. Sun yeah, De- it was at yeah. Sun Devil Stadium. I'm pretty sure Wardy won. Yeah. But it might have been RJ. I'm not sure. Good, good, good guess. It was one of those two. Yeah, right, right. That's not really. That's but, pretty much uh, that whole year. But uh, um, I went to the pits afterwards. Don't know how I got down there. I didn't know anybody or have yeah. any passes, so that's why I think it was just. Yeah. If you were heading out to your car and you wanted to make a little turn over here to the left, that's where they had their, you know, like six or seven box vans right. and a bunch of pickup trucks. And I had uh, at the time I had a broken arm, and I still have the cast. It's like. You know, yeah, <laughs> it was tiny, <laughs> and I had, I got, uh, I got the Doggers autograph on it, Wardy's, and Eddie Warren. Oh, Eddie Warren, yeah. Classic. Well, it Still had, to, it. it had to have been, uh, if it was Eddie Warren, it would have had to have been '87 because that was the year he rode 250 class, and '86 he rode 125 class. Did you ride 125 west? Uh, east, because he was from Michigan. Yeah. Mm. So then, yeah, it was probably '87. Yeah. yeah. 
He only rode 250 Supercross one year and got third third place at one of the Meadowlands races. Eddie Warren. Yeah, he got the the race I went to. He got third. Yeah, yeah I was I was like, who is this guy? Right. Um, so, so it was Kawasaki apparently. <laughs> were they were they were all the guys cool to you, Ping? Do you remember? Um. Yeah. I don't know. I I get. I, I don't even really remember that well. I, right. I was kind of like you know you're you're so like yeah in awe with these guys, and but I didn't even really. I don't think I really realized how. I don't know. At the time, I didn't even realize much about professional racing. It was so different than, like, now you feel like you know everybody because you can read everything about them online. Right. You can find out stuff, you know, personal stuff about them that you don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah, believe us, But man. back then, it was, was, <laughs> yeah, right? Well, the best thing was, uh, what was the, it was a hotline, one one 800 supercross race or you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, 1-900-PRO-RACE. Pro-RACE. Yeah. yeah. There was a few of them, I think, but that was one of them, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so that was the best way to get, you know, when you had to call a freaking 900 number to find out who won. Yeah. Because you didn't want to wait a week for cycle news or, you know. We we went in 89 when we went to these super these supercosses. Like my favorite rider was, was obviously Ross Patterson, and he was racing down in the States here. And then uh, Mark Barnett was my favorite rider as a kid. And Barnett had retired in 86, and he came back for tough racing. Do you remember? He was number 100 or 101. 100, no, 101. You remember that riding for tough racing? And yeah, I just remember a picture in Cycle News saying his comeback is not working out, and it was a picture of him picking his bike up. Well, see, I, I go to, I go to the race. We, we go to the race, and uh, I'm super, I'm super pumped. No, you know what? It, it was Miami was first before because I'm riding at Croom, which we didn't know anything about Croom. Literally, you, you've been there, right, Ping? And, yeah, Weed, you, I know, you know. I, it's about. I rode there with Ricky a bunch. That place is pretty good. Yeah, so my dad and I are driving down the freeway interstate, looking for a track to ride because we—that's <laughs> how. What? That's all we know. We see. We see some bikes. We double back. We end up at Croom, which turns out we found the best place we could possibly dream of, right? But we didn't know any different. We just say, "Hey, we want to ride." So, but because we drove down from Canada, and uh, I'm out there riding. On a KX125, I think. This is, this is in uh, 89, in the, in the winter of 89. And Mark Barnett passes me on my left-hand side around a sweeper. And I just stopped. I, I just stopped. I just, like, stopped my bike on the track. was like, oh, my God. Mark Barnett is here. <laughs> I mean, he, my hero just passed me. And, you know, he's going Mach 10 to, to me and... And I, I'm just like, oh my god! I just hightailed it back to the track, to, back, to, back to the truck. Told my dad, like, Mark Barnett is here, Mark Barnett is here, and he's like, all right, you know, whatever. And we were there. I don't know where they were parked there. I think we found out where they were parked and sort of moved our van closer to that area, to where the, the some of the fast guys were practicing. And Bomber had uh, thrown some handlebars in the trash, some Answer Alumnites, some gray gunmetal gray. And uh, you can be sure I grabbed those things right out of the trash. And I was still here, little Stevie. Oh. Dad, hand me my tooth. Mark Burnett is here. <laughs> I'm going to take my bike over and see if he'll sign my decals. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, uh, decals. <laughs> and uh, so then the Miami Supercross comes, and Barnett is just, I mean, this is not well. I remember he didn't ride well um, in the heat race, and I'm like, okay, well, no big deal, Bomber. You know, you get him in the semi. I mean, you're, you're, you're one-time Supercross champion, finished second three times in the series, no problem. Yeah, it was a long time ago, but you're still the man. And uh, he comes out, and there's this little double that, like, I can remember, like, rollerball jumping, Kehoe jump. I remember Kehoe won the semi, 
Barnett was in second or third or whatever, up there pretty good, and he goes for this jump that, like, everybody's clearing. And he go he, he wasn't. And he goes for it, and he just eats shit. Cartwheels. And I'm just like, oh, no. He, like, gets carted off, like my hero, right in front of me, on a jump that, like, everybody was doing. And uh, I was like, oh, no. And that was it. He never raced again after that. That was the, the end of his comeback. That was the last race. Uh, and I saw him in the pits after, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, he's talking to a bunch of people, and I'm just one of those kids that I see every weekend now just standing off to the side when you know they want something, but, you know, they're just going to wait. Although kids nowadays will just pretty much bum rush you. But, um, uh, and then I go over to him, and I'm just like, you know, hey, Mr. Mr. Barnett, do you, uh, do you have any jersey I can have or anything? And he just looks, he just looks at me and goes, no, and just walks away. Dude, I was just crushed, just crushed. Didn't even get his autograph. Like I was, I, I was just because he just walked away right away, and I was like, "Oh man, Barnett, oh tough, tough weekend for Mark Barnett." I mean, it was for me as a kid. I was like, "Wow, this is not good for the for the bomber." But rollerball made the main, I believe, both both races, and uh, you know, it was a good, it was it was unbelievable to see those guys. I still have the Cinesalo jersey that I was wearing. Doesn't fit me anymore, by the way, uh-huh. and uh, strange, I know. Um, and with all the guys' autographs, so I got Holly and you know Johnny O and RJ and Dogger and of course Rollerball. That's probably the only guy to go over to Rollerball. Tell him I was from Canada. He probably just looked at me, and uh, it was just so cool to see those guys, you know, right there, right in front of you. It's just they were just larger than life. Like RJ signing that clutch lever. I can remember that. Like I'm like, why would somebody give him a clutch lever? You know, and he's trying to sign Ricky Johnson on this clutch lever and. Um, he was cool. RJ was cool. He had, I mean, uh, you know, back then the whole stadium just they just freaked out. They just loved him. Mm. He, he had He's that a rock star, man. He, 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 yeah. He uh, that was RJ was probably one of the first moments when I really realized how good those guys were, because you can watch a Supercross if you've never been on a track. I mean, as a kid, you're like, I don't know. You kind of think, well, that that doesn't look that hard. You know, maybe I could do it. I don't know. Right. But he came out one year. Team Honda came out and did a. They did some preseason testing at this track called Canyon Raceway out in Phoenix. And it is a place I rode at. As soon as I moved to Phoenix, we rode there. Every Wednesday night they had practice. And any race they had, I mean, that was like my local spot. And uh, <clears throat> I was pretty, you know, I rode pretty good there. I had it dialed. So to see those guys come out, it was, um, it was RJ and I, I want to say Fail at the time. And uh, anyway, they both came out. This is when, and RJ had like, he had two hip on the back of his pants. Oh, yeah. And I just yeah. remember everything. And that was, you know, I don't know, watching him ride this track that I knew that well and seeing how fast, you know, never seeing anyone go that fast around it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, he, he, it definitely like the image of a professional motocross guy definitely sank in that day. Yeah, we, you know, uh, um, I raced that amateur supercross race and I was, Pretty good for Canada. I think I finished. Well, I I went four four six at the Loretta Lens of Canada for seventh overall in the eighty expert class. Like talk about getting screwed. Anyways, so I'd gone four four six in all of Canada on the eighties, right? So I was pretty fast in Canada on an eighty. I line up for this amateur super amateur supercross day at at Atlanta supercross. I mean, I, I don't even see the top 10. I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like, I just got my doors blown off. And I'm just like, okay, wow. Re- like, big reality check. Like, holy crap. 
you know, these dudes are fast. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're jumping doubles. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. And, and then two years later, I was down in California staying at Gary Semick's racing and riding in California. And again, I was uh, one of the top amateurs in Canada. I got Honda support, uh, won some titles, you know, in Canada. I go to Paris Raceway, and I line up in the B class. And, I mean, again, I just – I mean, Craig Decker was, was, was there. And uh, I know Mickey Diamond and Travis Parker were there when they were riding Hondas together, when they were going to do the GPs. They were racing the pro class. I rode the B class, and, again, I never saw the dudes. Like, I'm just like, oh, my God, like – I'm just not cut out for this. This is not going to work out well. Like, <laughs> you know, you got no idea. You, you, you're, the, you're the king of Montana or the king of Manitoba. Or I wasn't even that, you know, but a real eye-opener for sure. Ping, when you got to uh, – when when you were 10 and you were in Phoenix going to those races, like you raced on your – you raced yourself. Did you know who all the guys were? Like were you a guy that just rode and, hey, there's a race? Or did you know Wardy and all those guys? And when you went there, you're like, I can't believe I'm going to get to see them. Uh, I probably like a lot of kids. I knew the very top guys, you know. So I knew right. Wardy, I knew Johnson, I knew Lachine, I knew you know Bradshaw when Roller he came ball. up. But Rollerball. No, I do. Roll. You know, I didn't. I didn't follow all every right. minute detail of it. But Wardy was my guy. Wardy was my guy. Right. He was short. He was getting it done. He was always like, you know soft-spoken or, 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 you know, he, he, he didn't talk it up where RJ was more, you oh, know, yeah. run his mouth a little bit flashy. Right. I always thought he was an arrogant prick, you know, before I knew Ricky. But. Um, uh, and then years later, you, you basically bro down with Wardy every day. Yeah, no, I know. I actually, at Grant Lakes, this is how long this took before Wardy and I became friends uh, because I just didn't think it was possible. <laughs> but <laughs> Grant Lakes was championship party. What, what year did he win the – the 125 oh, championship. 01. 01. 03. 01. Okay. Oh. 03? Yeah, 01 was when the wheel broke. Your fault, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Forget it. Sorry. 03. I'm sorry. 03. Both of you had a hand in that. You both screwed the team. Yeah. Yeah. We were there. I don't know if Ping was there that day. Because Ping, were you? Probably, yeah, I was there. You dropped yeah, yeah. out of the I, I was riding for, uh, well, I was riding for KTM. Yeah, I was No, there. I know, but I don't, like, you didn't always make the end of the series. You know, just certain things happened. That's well, yeah, I was there. Unfortunately, I didn't get an injury that year. Do you remember? I had to ride all of them. Do you remember how quiet our pits were? <laughs> Ping, do you remember they brought in, like, all those dudes from Austria? And oh, it, yeah. And, and then, like, you couldn't. Grant's girlfriend at the time was just bawling her eyes out and. and uh, makeup, makeup going everywhere. Makeup she everywhere, had, like, yeah. Two inches of makeup on, high heels. And, uh, and, and we were, you could have heard a pin drop in our pits. We were just like, oh, that sucked. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Uh, anyway, so where was I going? Oh, so Grant had a championship party, and uh, we took limos out from wine country where he lived to Irvine, to the Spectrum. I mean, it's like a two-hour drive in a limo. And we drank, drank the cars dry. So we were just obliterated by the time we got there. And I jump out of the car. We go inside this place we had rented out. The first guy I see is Wardy. And, you know. There was just no shame at that point. Right. So I went right out to him, threw my eye around him. I'm like, Jeff Ward, you're my hero, man. I just like <laughs> gushed, gushed like crazy. Right. I think, and, and you know, Wardy doesn't drink. Like, I don't know if Wardy's ever had a drink of alcohol. He just doesn't drink. So he's just laughing at me, shaking his head. But right. that broke the ice. Then after that, the next time I saw him, well, hey, 
I think I might have said something to you. I don't know. <laughs> I apologize if it was stupid. Right. Uh, uh, Way to meet your idol, right? Really yeah. laying on the line for him. Yeah, no that doubt. That is usually how it, how it works when you're at the when you're like an adult. Like the same thing. Like I never broed down with with RJ until at Loretta's. He was there with Suzuki in '04, I think. He was remember he was working with DeCoster for a little while at Suzuki, and he was kind of mm-hmm. there with Hepler and Brian okay. Gray under his wing. And we were so into it. Me and Kevin Kelly were the two announcers at Loretta's. We would announce all day, and then go back to our hotel room and then, like, watch races on DVDs and stuff at night. And then we had just watched um, one of those DVDs that you have, Steve, you know, with the, these 1980s Supercrosses. Yeah. And then we go back to the track to go to the beer tent, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. We were just watching RJ and making fun of all this stuff and saying all this, and he's standing right there. <laughs> like, when is this going to – this would be like watching Pulp Fiction and then, like, you turn and Travolta sitting next to you on the couch. Hey, John. Yeah. How about this scene? How'd right. this happen? Right. So, same thing. We were at the beer tent. We were hammered. So, we just started rolling through it. But, unfortunately, it's one of those deals where, like, the problem with RJ now is that he was, he epitomized the 80s. And we all know now that everything that was cool in the 80s is kind of corny now. So, speak for so yourself. It, well, it's hard to, it was very hard to explain this and ask him questions about it without coming off that you were making fun of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, Wearing jam, baggy, neon orange pants and Oakley blades. Like, it's hard to explain that that was cool without sounding like it was sarcastic. So I think hey, Rick, ended, how did you get your mullet so sweet, bro? <laughs> That's what I mean. So I think in the end, I remember the conversation ended with him walking away, flipping us to bird, and I thought it was awesome. Why, well, again, do you remember us assaulting Eric Gabor's? Oh, it's very similar. It's very, very similar. Like, my buddy... <laughs> My buddy Ron there, the fireman, he said that Gabor's was like, get me away from these two. They're crazy. And that was, that, that was not yeah. good. Um, and we were full adults. This is only – this is Bud's Creek donations. Yeah. So Ping, we're just, we, we're just wasted at the after party. Well, pretty drunk. I remember it, so I wasn't that drunk. And Gabor's yeah. was there just hanging. And me and Wygant, you know, he's the first rider. He was the first rider to win all three world titles. Might be the only one still. I don't know. No, Joe Bay did it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's the first one to win all three world titles. So a 500 plus 250 plus 125 equals 875. So they used to call him Mr. 875. They had, like, a little plate for him. And, and we cornered him and was just – we were yelling at him, spraying him with cake and stuff, like com- probably coming out of our mouths because they, they had this cake. And we're just like, you're awesome, Mr. 875 right here, right here. And we're, like, backing him up and, like – Sort of like chest bumping him and like yelling at him and telling him how great he was and dude, I think we scared him. Yeah, he kind of like he kind of like like a snake, like kind of like slithered out of there, like yeah. got underneath the got underneath the coverage. Yeah, we and, were and, very excited to meet Eric Boris. And told, well, I just figured I'm never going to see this guy again. Like yeah. this is it. Yeah. Like if you want to bench race Eric Boris, you're going to get one chance, and it's today. You're not going to see him at the races <laughs> hard, next week. Hard to bench race with him when we're just yelling at him though. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, I, I picture you two like the guys from uh, Night at the Roxbury oh, trying to dance with a girl. For sure. <laughs> There's no doubt. But actually, I've interviewed Eric since and talked to him at some GPs and stuff. Great guy. Hopefully he doesn't remember me. I don't think he does. Um, My theory was if, if two guys who are not from Europe knew the Mr. 875 thing, right. that he would be so – because that was 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, for sure. Probably earlier that day, he uh, wasn't allowed in some – hot dog stand area, you know, because he didn't have the right credential. You know what I mean? It's Eric Gabor. It's like in some, some guy's security guard's like, 
you know, I'm going to call the cops on you, old man, you know? Yeah, who are you? So, yeah, yeah. I thought he would be so blown away that we knew that, that all would be well, but we managed to somehow. Uh, RJ, RJ is one guy that I never really, I've never really spoken to. You know, I asked him to do a podcast one time, and he said he would do it. And then he said to call him tomorrow, the next day, and I did. And then he said, okay, well, man, you can come on by and set your camera up and stuff. And I, I went, uh, uh. No, it's not a video thing. It's it's just a recorded conversation, like just over the phone. And he was like, "You could hear him." He went, "Oh," and uh, so I was like, well, "You know, I still want to do it. It's, you got a great career. You got a lot to talk about." And he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Call me the next day." And then, dude, I would call the guy like for like a week, and he would be like, "Hey, dude, I'll call you right back," and then not call me back, and start getting me a little pissed because I was like, "Dude, if you don't want to do it, no problem." Also, quit shining me off. I mean, just I'll call you right back, and then I would literally sit there and like not do anything and wait for this call back. <laughs> and he did this to me three or four times, clearly not recognizing my number. Do you know what I mean? You know how you pick your phone up? You don't know the number? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. It's this douchebag. I'll call you right mm-hmm. back. You know what I mean? So anyways, I don't really know RJ. I still would like to do a podcast with him. I don't really know him. Never really spoken to him. But uh, just about everybody else that's around, I have, you know? And, uh, and RJ is the one guy that's kind of gotten away. I had a similar uh, situation with him. We uh, we decided we were finally going to do a feature on him in the magazine, and uh, they were like, I was still pretty much full-time GNCC guy, but they were really pushing for me to do more Racer X stuff, and I'm like, man, if I could really knock it out of the park on this hard. They're like, man, if you want to do one on Charlie Mullins, I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I had the Rodney Smith stories <laughs> dialed. But I was like, man, if I get to do the RJ story, this is this is a big uh, a big notch on the bedpost here. So... And I was getting the same thing. Like, it was all, I had to get this story. And I was getting the same thing. Like, he wouldn't call back for like two days. And I finally would get him. And he'd be like, let me call you right back. And he wouldn't. And, oh, that's you know, good to I know. Think, A little bit. It's good to know it wasn't just me. Yeah, he ran the same, same thing. But um, I remember one time he called me. It was whatever. It's West Coast time. And I was on the East Coast. So it was like I was in a store. Like, I was in Walmart, like, shopping for toilet paper or something. And he calls. And I, and I was like, I had to find a way. I kept small talking him all the way. I ran out of the store, drove back to the office five minutes away, got in at like 10 p.m., you know, unlocked the office, turned the lights on, got in, got the audio thing recording. Wow. In like, in like the five minutes of small talk. I don't think he ever realized that I had started out in a store. Uh, probably never got the toilet paper that I needed yeah. either. Or, or stole um, it or ran out with it, not realizing it or something. Yeah. But the you know, thing I, was. I, oh, go ahead, Ping. No, I was going to say, I, I may have been part of the reason he blows people off because <laughs> when I was uh, probably, I don't know, I'd have been maybe 13, 14 years old, still right in the 80s, and I was hanging out with Sean Kalos' sister quite a bit. And Sean knew hanging Ricky. Out. Hanging out, you know. Well, hanging out. Yeah, he really never got much more than that. But oh. anyway. Second base? Uh, no. No. Okay. Didn't really get off the ground that one. Okay. Anyway. But but Sean was good buddies with Rick at the time. They friend were, zone. The friend know, zone. Just... Ping was in the friend zone. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know what happened there. Okay. I think she was out of my league a little. Uh, Sean's sister, Shana, she used to be pretty hot. Or maybe, I, I don't know. Anyway. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com Racer X podcast show. It's that time. Time for a commercial. Thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com podcast show. Please don't forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike or body. 
you'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for $309.99, 45% off, or Smith Piston goggles for $32.99, 65% off. Your order can be shipped at anywhere in the USA for free. Or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at btosports.com. JT Racing USA is back to reestablish its deep roots in the motocross industry with an all-new, innovative line of racewear and casual wear. While bringing many of JT's strongest design elements from its golden years back to life, the racewear is constructed with the highest grade material on the market and has a technological fit, feel, and function that is sure to raise the bar in how motocross gear is being built. JT has relaunched itself back into motocross with the Pro Tour jersey, classic pants, lifeline, and flex field gloves in eight colorways with an assortment of men's and women's casual wear to add to its collection. By redefining the meaning of airflow, JT has incorporated its airline system technology into this collection and is now getting set to launch its all-new ALS2 helmet in seven colorways to complete the rebirth of the brand. The wait is over, so go visit your local dealer for more information or log on to JTRacingUSA.com to find a dealer near you. Getting off topic. So here's my point. Okay. So she had, she knew Ricky from Sean hanging out with him, and she had his phone number in her little, oh. you know, Rolodex or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And I couldn't believe, I'm like, you have Rick Johnson's phone number? I'm like, let me have it. And I, for like a week, two weeks, I t- I'm like, yeah, let me have it. Let me have Rick Johnson's phone number. <clears throat> so she finally breaks down. Okay, I'm gonna give it to you, but you, you know, can't call him. Or yeah, I don't know. Don't ever call him. What are you gonna do with it? Yeah, don't ever call him. <laughs> of course, you know, first thing I do when she gives it to me, I call it up like a hundred times <laughs> and hang up. <laughs> I would never say anything, but I just call and just like breathe real heavy into the phone. <laughs> well, no, and Ricky was, uh, you know, you know, he was, he's especially back then. He was so like. Uh, he was just kind of a goofball and very, you know, animated, whatever. So he would change his, his voicemail all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, the one I still remember to this day, I just, this was, like, so him. It was the weekend of Bercy Supercross. So, you know, I called, and I just listened to his voicemail. I don't know why I thought this was cool. But just, this like, is, like, this is creepy. It's kind of creepy talk. a little bit. It's a little creepy. It's a little, it is. But he, he talked in this French accent. Hello, this is Rick. I am in Paris. I cannot answer the phone, you know. And he would go on and on, like in a little French accent. Yeah, wow. So he's probably sick of creepers like me blowing up his phone, right. and you know yeah. that's why he blows you off now. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I have this was for me an RJ. It was two years ago, and I've never really spoken to him since. Although my wife, when we lived in Anaheim, my wife went with Sharon Richards to some purse parties with RJ's wife, which was like a third degree of separation with RJ. And remember Gothic J? We all know Gothic J, the mechanic. Lived across the street from RJ for a while. So, so with RJ, you can call any of these dudes right now, but with RJ, you're down to second and third degree yeah, separation. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, really. I, I really I, like I said, I've never really run into him. Never really had a chance to. You know? Uh, I've done podcasts with just about everybody about RJ. I'll so, tell you, when uh, I finally got him on the phone, though, he it was like he went into... Like, he went right into the groove. Like, yeah. he told the life story. I didn't need to do any work to get the bad <laughs> stuff, the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. he, when he broke his wrist, he went right down to how sad he was and how hard it hurt him. And I'm like, man, you can't get this stuff out of guys that you know and talk to every week. Right. And you beg them to give you this info. Like, 
the guy just turns it on. He had to have been tough. He was he was top of the world, won, won every Supercross, was a champion, broke his wrist, never won again. That's it. Boom. You know what I mean? Well, not even just that story. Like, in general, he knew how to tell his story. Yeah. You didn't, yeah. you know, a lot of times it's like the guys are just racing and it's like they don't right. even realize what's going on. They're just, but, but no, he knew so, what his story was. And, I mean, I think that's what made him what he was at the time. He so, had a well, there was, there was nobody, show. there was nobody before, well, I shouldn't say nobody. There was Bob Hanna. Your buddy Bob Hanna. Then there was Rick Johnson. And then there was Jeremy McGrath. Right. And I don't know where we're at now, but, like, when oh. it comes to people with charisma who genuinely drew people to this sport, right. made fans yeah. out of them. Rick Johnson was that guy of that era. I mean, I think uh, I think James Stewart does that now. Not to the dudes on the message boards, but to the average fans. I do believe he he brings people to the sport. Uh, but uh, that's a topic for another day. Uh, so putting it putting it nicely, Wygant, um, who's been the biggest disappointment to me? And I, I don't mean I don't mean as a jerk or or you can or as a douchebag or anything like that. Like who's just been kind of maybe a little bit. Let down? You've been a little bit let down. You built them so big. You built them so up in your mind. Um, Is there man, somebody no like coming that? out of nowhere? I, I'm sure I got an answer for this. Let's think about it. I will say this: when we're we're sticking with the same guy here, there's something weird about RJ that when you see him now, you're like, that's not the same guy. Like, why is that? It, yeah, I don't know what it is. Like. I'm sure when you saw Barnett in 89, or even if you see Barnett now, it's still Mark Barnett, even though he's older, even though even when you saw him in right, 89, right, skills, right. The, the, the time had passed him by. Yeah. But, you know, when you see most of these guys, it's the same guy. You see Glover every weekend, it's the same Brock Glover. Um, but I do feel like it's a weird thing when you see RJ. You're like, that is Rick Johnson, but that's not the Rick Johnson I remember. And I don't know what there is about that. Cause why, was, why? Like, what about, I mean... Maybe he was just such a, such a showman or something. I don't know. I mean, now he's just standing around like all of us. What I, what I think is unfortunate about him is, I, I've, I've given this theory a couple times, that showmanship that he had, it's awesome when the spotlight's on. A lot of guys don't want the spotlight. They just want to race motorcycles, and then the spotlight comes to them, and it's just inevitable. I think other guys, they're racing, and they're good at it, and they also want to be a star. They don't just want to be a good motorcycle racer. They want to be a star, and it works out awesome during that time period, but that time period doesn't last forever. And then you're left kind of searching. And I think the guys like that, you've seen them dabble in a whole bunch of things. Like, okay, you know, I think Jeff Emick wanted to be a star, so it worked out for him. But that's why as soon as he retired, I'm going to run a team, I'll work for a gear company, I'm going to do TV. Right. You know, they're trying to find and, – and McGrath has done the exact same thing. I mean, he's done right. 100 different things since. Um, and I think RJ tried to do that – but the first thing he did was NASCAR, and it didn't work out. And then he comes back to the sport a few years later, and I think already how quickly things change here. People have forgotten him a little bit. Right. And I feel like he's always struggling for traction. You yeah, know? I don't think RJ is remembered with the reverence that a Jeff Ward or a Jeff Stanton is. And and I think it may have something to do with RJ. You know, he didn't stick with Honda. He kind of did something with the Coster. He kind of did something with KTM. He's right. kind of did Paris Raceway. But, like, Wardy, I mean, he raced, and then he raced cars, and then he raced Hondas and Supermoto, and, you know, now he's back with Kawasaki. And uh, Stanton has always been a Honda guy through and through at the races for a long time. I don't think RJ gets his, his reverence that he should have just as such a great, great, great rider. And I think it's a little bit because he's jumped around a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, Tim? that's what I mean. Like, yeah. he's trying to find that niche, but he yeah. can't find it. What do you think, Ping? 
Yeah, I, I just think he, and, and this isn't just RJ, and this is, man, these guys are a dime a dozen. The guy's trying to find their spot in life after racing. I mean, he's yeah. he's used to being a champion. He, you know, that was, man, he was on top of the world. That was, he was the man. And so you go from that to being, well, I can't do that anymore physically, even though, men, and that had to be what's the hardest is mentally. He was there, you know? Yeah. Those years on where he was wearing JT there at the end or whatever, those last couple of years, was like, he knew he could go that fast. His wrist just wouldn't let him. I mean, it had to be so frustrating for him. Right. So then, to, yeah, try to find another niche for car racing or truck racing or something and just, you know, couldn't, NASCAR is tough to break into and the truck racing thing is just hard to fund. And But, but Wardy's done it, and I think uh-huh. he's maintained a little bit of, of historical significance or more so than RJ. Yeah, but I think part of it well, is the Wardy personality was, you know, Wardy did IndyCar and he, I see he did mean, pretty yeah. well. Right. He wasn't the biggest star. He did okay. And then once it wasn't working for him, he just stopped. Right, right. Yeah, okay. And then he, right. You know what I mean? Um, and, and, so I think that's the yeah. difference. Yeah. And Wardy was able to, you know, one part of his legacy is, man, and, and Ricky may have been like this, we'll never know, but Jeff kept winning. I mean, he, he was Supermoto champion up till a few years ago. I mean, what is he? Yeah. I don't know how old he is, but he's, he's 104. it's like amazing how how much of a racer that guy is, right down to his core. You know, yeah. he, um, he's 104 and, and years old, so just he's about 100. Yeah. So yeah, and and even now, on a race team, you know, I mean, he just he he loves it. Racing is what he does, and that's so, that, that's just what he's going to do. Ping, same question to you. Then, is there somebody that has let you down a little bit? And I don't, mean, um, I don't, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be like a dick and bag on it. I just, you know what I mean? Like, just somebody that you're like, like Chicken Matasevich at the U.S. Open press conference when he came back to race Damon, he let me down a little bit. I was like, wow, yeah, chicken. That was a letdown. Chicken, really? Like, you seem to not know what's going on right now. You know, and, and, that, and that's all. I mean, I don't really know the guy. I'm just, just, you know, I'm just like, that's Chicken. I mean, Chicken was a bad dude. So, you know, I, I, and I don't want this to seem like I'm bashing. Roger DeCoster, but he would have to be the one guy. And, and this is weird because I didn't, you know, ever get to see Roger race. So I had to, just, I, you know, you just go off what people say about how gnarly he was and yeah. obviously his credentials. But it's not like I ever watched him race back then and went, wow, that guy's amazing. <clears throat> so, but, but when I rode for Suzuki for, you know, a couple years there, I spent a lot of time around him in the pits. And I had, I was in Phoenix one year, and, and I was just always a little disappointed by how, if I did good one weekend, like after I won Anaheim in uh, in 2000, after even even Minneapolis the year before, you know he came up and and not all year he hadn't I mean he hadn't spoken to me all year, and but after I went a race he's right up oh good job you know patting my back and stuff I'm like all right whatever you know right and then and then the next year Anaheim same thing he's great job you know yeah you know you need any help you let us know if you want to you know right whatever I needed then. And then at the end of the year, when I had the mechanical and didn't win the championship, nowhere around, nowhere. And I and I also saw I had a guy in Phoenix one of those years. Uh, maybe it was when I was riding for KTM, but he, this guy, he loved Roger Coster. I mean, this guy was older. He grew up watching him. And he this was his guy. And he goes, man, do you think you could introduce me to him? Like he goes, it would just I can't tell you what it would mean to me just to shake his hand and like right. tell him tell him I'm a fan. You know how people are. Like they just want to. Just say hi and just a couple friendly little chitty chatty words and they'd be happy. And so uh, I take him over there. This is 
this is Phoenix, probably. Like, you're done racing? This is Racer X career oh, now? Uh, no, this is like maybe 01 or 02. I think I was riding for KTM at the time. Okay. And I take him over there, and I say, hey, Roger, this is, uh, you know, so-and-so. Um, he's, he's a big fan of yours, grew up watching your race. He just wanted to come over and say hi. And Roger just shakes his hand and goes, hello, and then turns and walks away. And it was like, there wasn't anything going on. It wasn't <laughs> like a heat race was about to take off. Right. And the guy, like, looked at me, and I just... I kind of just like put my shoulders up and walk. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, you did. I did my part. <laughs> and the guy was like, wow. You know, all right. I mean, you yeah. could just see the disappointment on his face. His 50 yeah. some year old man's face. He was devastated. He was a <laughs> nine year old again. Just, yeah. you know, yeah. told him, you just got told Christmas yeah. was canceled. Yeah. My, uh, my biggest one might have been David Pingree, actually. Oh, brother. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I did work with Ping on a, on a, a 1998, and he does not remember me. But, yeah, um, that was awesome. Uh, yeah, no, you know what? Um, I've done a lot of these podcasts, and for me, it might – and only because I've built him up so much, but not because anything to do with him being a, a bad guy is Barnett. Like, he's a good guy. He's friendly. He was I hung out with him at Chad's last year when he was building Chad's track. and But he talked about, like, I just built this guy up. He was so understated. Like, he did not – really know what was going on with his career and like or not care to talk about it and kind of just like yeah whatever you know what i mean i mean he 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 lost four titles by like six points or something combined or seven points um and and he already what is a four-time champion so he could very easily be a seven or eight time champion of the sport and he just like he could care less like i just like i'm like a bomber you know he's just like yeah you know Why'd you retire? You'd want to race. Yeah, yeah, I just felt like it. I'm just like, okay, all right. You know what I mean? Just one of those guys, like, no ego, sort of no, but also no ego, but also didn't really, wasn't a great conversationalist, let's say. Well, there's a strange thing in sports where, like, like Mickey Mantle, I remember where I always say this, where, like, crazy Yankee fans would come up and tell him about all these different things he did, and he had no recollection of this game or whatever. Like, they were more into his career than he was. Right. He was just playing right. baseball. Right. But they were obsessed with him more than he was with himself. So maybe that's kind of the Barnett thing. Like, yeah. they were just racist to him, but to you, you remember every detail even more than he does, which sounds strange, but yeah. I think it happened. Yeah, yeah one, guy, one guy who does know a lot is, like, Lachine. Like, he remembers... Which is surprising that he remembers, because you know a lot of them he might have been, he might have been a little uh, substance uh, induced. But like he knows, like he'll be like, yeah, dude, that bitch and helmet I had, and I put that sticker there because I always loved that company. My buddy had a surf company, and that's his sticker. And I love this gear, and that bike was like that. Dude remembers everything about his career because he was. I think he was a fan. He said growing up, he was just a fan. He read all the magazines, you know what I mean. And then when he got on him, when he get got in him, he was just pumped on that. So. Uh, there's a guy that remembers everything about everything. So you could show him any photo, and he'll be like, I think that's this year and this track, and I went this year, and I wore that gear on that day because of this. And the guy's incredible. Yeah. So, Morty's the same way. He yeah. can tell you, hey, what about this race this year? You know, yeah. what happened? Lap 10. You're like, oh, yeah, I remember that track. There was a deep route in that turn. And I hit a rock. And Yeah, yeah, no, I've done some of these. with Morty's been great. You know, so it's just a – a different way of doing it, like uh, I don't know. Why? Because he sits in that chair with his cat, staring at that TV screen, yeah. <laughs> studying <laughs> at all times. Um, and then, who can forget why Gat when you were a kid and you went to Motocross Nations in '87? Uh, we talked about that one enough. Yeah, about that one enough. I know, I know. Just yeah. let's, let's not. I did. I actually, you know, it's funny. I believe I got to meet the Coster 
Yeah, I got to meet the coster that day, and I think I got the same treatment that your buddy did there, Ping. Yeah? Yeah. Uh. So where your buddy was a 50-year-old that felt like a 9-year-old, I was literally 9, so it worked out exactly <laughs> like that. What about, <laughs> what about when you met uh, Kessler? Did you ever meet those guys when you were flagging? Uh, it was before I was fl- once I was flagging. I was like, "There's no way I'm walking up to any of these dudes in the pits with a flag and like yeah. trying to bro down. Like it's over." Right. Um, but when I was younger, yeah, and Kessler was like the man I did. And I remember I had these, you know, like the mud boots, the rubber boots that all the chicks wear nowadays. If there's even like 50 percent precipitation, in the, if there's humidity in the forecast, yeah, and they're colored. They these boots. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I had they weren't colored, but they I had like rubber mud boots. I think I was wearing, and I. My dad brought me over to Mickey, and I introduced myself. And the whole conversation, he's looking at these boots, trying to figure out, is this kid riding? Like, are those motocross <laughs> boots? Like, he kept looking at the boots and looking at me like he yeah. wanted to say, like, hey, are you racing today? But he couldn't. It was like 49% sure he didn't want to quite commit. Right. <laughs> so the whole conversation was that. Him looking at the boots, trying to size me up. Can he ask me about racing or not? Kind of figure out, yeah, what, where you're at in life. Are, are you just a fan? Or are you racing? I see these boots. But you were. Hey, just, I, have, yeah. I have. I have another moment. I wonder if you guys remember any of this. Did you stock? Yeah, our, did you stock Look at RJ's window at night. Is this where this is going? <laughs> no, no, nothing like that. This was like probably. Uh, this was before I really even got into. I guess I would have been to that Supercross already because I think it was '88. Was at the World Mini when they still did the Race of Champions, mm-hmm. and uh, this was when Swink and Lusk and Budman, um, Clowers, Albrecht, uh, I think uh, Kyle Lewis maybe, and Mike and uh, anyway, tons of guys. It was like loaded, right? And I remember Swink was the dude from the East Coast. He was like, yeah. oh, Gaddis. Gaddis was there too. Damn. Dean Dickerson would have his RM80 up on a stand, going with the break. Remember when he used to do that? <laughs> no, you guys remember that at all? No. Again, we weren't. No. We were in New Jersey and oh. Canada, respectively. Sorry. Well, Dean Dickerson was R and D was it, man. Yeah. If you rode a Suzuki and R and D was doing your stuff, you were just ridiculous. That was like it was like Suzuki R and D was factory Suzuki, and uh, DMC was factory DMC Cali. was doing Swink's bike and Musk and those guys. So. <clears throat> Dean Dickerson would put the bike on the stand. That's how he jet it. He would put a load on it by pushing on the brake pedal. So he'd put it into, like, third gear, just hold it wide open for, like, <laughs> a minute. <laughs> and he'd be just, like, pumping on the brake pedal and, like, putting the load off and then taking it off. And, you know, right. that's how he would that's how he would jet it before they'd go out for the, each race. So, anyway, I just remember being, like, just thinking that Buddy Antonez – and Brian, I'd sit there and stare at Brian Swink. I remember I was really standing like two feet from him watching him eat a cup of fruit. I remember this clear as day, 1988. He's a kid, by the way. Yeah, he, he's 15. 14. He's, yeah, no, he's totally 15. But <laughs> I was just like, I couldn't believe it. He was so gnarly. And he ended up taking somebody out in that race, and there was a big fight. Yeah. Anyway, big deal. But I remember looking at Brian Swink going, wow, yeah. that is the coolest dude ever. Gear, gear, gear. <laughs> he had gear, gear. Yeah, gear race, race wear. Yeah. John Harris. I think he had a beard already back then. I mean, like, yeah, he could. He had, like, the stubble. I was just, like, he was awesome. I had KX80 same year that Swink did, and he had Dunlop stickers. Remember Cowie's rear fender had, like, a – you couldn't put a sticker on a Cowie rear fender because they believed in arching them. They had two little arches in the back of them. Do you mm. remember that? Mm-hmm. And 
I but Swink, I saw a photo of him in motocross action um, with two Dunlop stickers up and down the high part of the fender. Like down the little the, yeah yeah the, the ridge yeah the ridge and so of course I peeled all my stickers off and put Dunlop, <laughs> even though I probably used Bridgestone or Michelin or whatever my dad bought. Um, Metzler, we used Metzlers for a little bit. Um, uh, so I dumb up on my bike, just like Swink. I was just like, if it, if Brian Swink's running that, then I, then that's that's what I'm running, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, good times, good times with your idols. Uh, and thing, when did you start? Um, like, what 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 age do you get to where you start actually thinking you might be racing somewhere along that level or racing even against those guys at some point? Like, when when does the transition begin when you're like, wait a minute, I might just be here. Um, I don't know. Some <laughs> some point, I, I think there was a moment when I was an intermediate, and I was like um, winning some championships against like Decker and Hoffman, and and it kind of felt like okay, I'm kind of like in this pipeline where we're going to all move along and move into the pro ranks, and you know it's right. going to work. Right. But then I turned pro with just like a little bit of help from Suzuki, and I got smoked. I had a terrible year my first year of pro. Blew number, my knee out. Sucked. Number 90, JT Gear. No, 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 no. That was the second year. Oh. First year was number 123 on a just a complete pile. I had like nine different people building my bike. <laughs> Some guy out of Phoenix, this guy Jerry Hall, was doing my motors. Bill Cervera did my exhaust. Uh, I had Race Tech doing suspension. I had this, you know. Yeah. I was just all over the place. And uh, I did terrible. Do you remember the first time you beat somebody good and you were like, wow, I'm good? Like beating Decker? Was Decker the man? Or, or how, Well, that's how, how he... that's how I got my Suzuki support ride. I was just, uh, I had like a dealership out of Arizona helping me. Mm-hmm. And there was a Loretta Lynn's qualifier at that track, Canyon Raceway. Oh, shit. It was like my stomping ground. Oh, oh yeah. boy. <laughs> oh. So those guys came out and they were, they were the, you know, Huffman and Decker were like the right. team green. They were the fair haired boys. They were being groomed to be the next big things. And uh, Suzuki, do you guys remember Caveman, Mark Johnson? Yeah. You guys remember him, blonde-haired guy who yeah. worked for Huffman for the couple years he won his title? Yeah. yeah. He was the Suzuki support guy at the time. And so, uh, you know, he didn't know me. I was nobody. You know, I, I think the best I had was, I think I got third at Mammoth that year. But this might even have been before that. But anyway, he comes out and uh, I, I smoked those guys. Three out of four motos I beat him. Wow. And, and the one moto, Huffman beat me the very last moto of the weekend. And they were so pissed. I mean, Decker's old man wanted to throw rocks at me. I, it, was, <laughs> it was hilarious. They just couldn't believe this local schmo. I think I was wearing, like, remember when Suzuki and Answer did the collaboration gear? And I had, like, a, a white long sleeve shirt on that had splatter paint on it with my dealership logo on the front. That was it. It wasn't even, like, a brand-name jersey. <laughs> and I was dealing with these guys. So... He went back that day and told Pat Alexander, he goes, hey, there's a kid here. He just beat De- Decker and Huffman three out of four motos. Like, we need to help this kid. And it didn't matter so, that it was your local track? Nobody cared? Apparently it didn't. <laughs> apparently it didn't. Like, literally, he called me the next week and was like, hey, like, you know. Like, Factory Honda isn't putting Alex Martin on the team from Millville results. You know what I mean? But, it, it, no, it's good for you. Don't get me wrong. But there was, there was nobody that could beat Decker and Huffman. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, they were the guys back then. Right, so, right. Huh. It's not like they signed me to a multi-year no, yeah, yeah, ride, yeah, but yeah. I got bikes and parts the next yeah, year. Yeah, you started getting, yeah. Nothing. And then yeah. all of a sudden you're like, wow, wait a minute. I can I can actually do something with this motorcycle. Yeah, awesome. well, you know, that was a moment. And then uh, 
And then 90, you know, so, and I won a couple of championships, 91, 92, 93 was my first year of pro. I sucked. Like my dreams were pretty much dashed. I was pretty sure I was headed to college. And then 94, I, I, I saved up enough money to do the Nascar, the Super, West Coast Supercross and five nationals. I had enough money to do that. That was my plan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's when I hooked up with Randy Lawrence and he got me plugged in with Mitch and Mitch was, you know, put me on a good bike and just kind of things sort of came together. And I got fourth in the Supercross series, and I got top five at – I got fifth at two of the five nationals I went to. And I think really? seventh at one. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do like remember, really well. I don't remember you so, doing that well. Like, I, I, I'm a hardcore fan. Of, the yeah, first I got fifth at Washington, going fifth at Troy. Wow. And I did, uh, I did crappy at Redbud. That was, like, my first national, and I crashed in both motos. Unadilla, I made the Terra Firma highlight reel. Oh, with your cartwheel! Oh. With your cartwheel! Yeah, Rhino took me out in turn one, and then somebody else comes by and just I start to stand up, and they hit me in the helmet with their handlebar. Yeah. You ever see that? Yeah. yeah. Wow, that was you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, so those two didn't go well, and then I went to there was one of them. Oh, Millville. I think I did pretty good at Millville, and then I got fifth at Troy and fifth at Washougal, and then I'm out of money. But I was talking to Mitch already at that point. He's like, "Hey, you know, so what are you doing next year?" And I'm like, well, uh, you know, nothing. I don't know. And uh, he goes, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you go do the last couple nationals? And I was like, I, I don't have any money. Yeah. Like he he did he wanted me to still go do a couple more to make sure I was legit. Right. I'm like, I don't have any money, dude. That's it. So your the purse money wasn't get wasn't getting you by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So anyway, he signed and, me. Anyway. And he still hired. He still signed you, even though you didn't do those last two. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So yeah. I, I guess '94 was really when it, I was like. I finally believed I could maybe belong there, you know? Yeah, so I had gotten, yeah. gotten some force. I didn't get a podium that year, but I was, like, right on Rhino and Huffy and, and Decker and whoever else was up there that year. It, it, now, if you had beat Bill Stork, you would have known way back when that you were something. But, you never, you know, you never did. Yeah, I think I was I was gone by then. I, I, I remember the name. I've heard it, but. Yeah, yeah bad Billy Stork. Um, uh, huh, Interesting. Um, hey Mathis, what about you when you when you started wrenching, get working in the United States, now you're going all the races. When does that like happen where you're just like, hey, wait a minute, I'm just part of this deal now? Like how did that? Uh, not for not not for a while because it was such uh, it was a different time then. With you know, you wouldn't get on a team and be established and get hang on to a job. Plus, I wasn't that good either. Also, and. Um, uh, it was every year I had to, you know, 96, I had I got fired from Corey Keeney. I didn't paint his frame, and he fired me. And then I worked for Kalos, and he was really weird, but then he hurt his finger. And so, uh, like. Hurt his finger, huh? Yeah, and then he was gone, dude. I remember I drove him out to his, he parked his rental car the furthest possible spot at Troy, Ohio Fields that you could go to get onto the highway. And I had to take him out there in a, in a golf cart or something. And then uh, that was the last I ever saw the guy. I said, hey, do you think you're racing next week? No. I think my, I, I think my finger's broken. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, all right, Sean. I never saw him again. Um, and so, like, every year. So then I got hooked up with Ty Birdwell. And, you know, that, that went all right. A few main events here and there. And then I got another job with Ty Birdwell. So I was sort of set for that. But he was number, national number 88, 89. I didn't really think that I was part of it. You know what I mean? Uh, and then I, I, I got a job at FMF Honda, and then I got fired from that, and then I couldn't get another job, and then I, I was 
struggling with that. And then I went to Europe for a little bit, came back. Not until like 99 when Ferry, I hooked up with Timmy and he started doing well. He was like top privateer at Supercross. And, and then I worked for Chaparral. We got picked up for Chaparral for the Nationals. And then I started like, okay, I can do this. But that was, you know, three years of, of, of flux and changing jobs and trying to call people and trying to do jobs. And only because I got lucky and then that Ferry was actually, you know, coming onto his own and, and producing good results, therefore making me look good, that I got some credibility. You know, and I managed to keep the bike somewhat <clears throat> staying together. And then I felt like, hey, okay, then I was good, you know? Do you think, compared to back then, when it was like box vans and there was a lot less money in the sport, do you think it was harder for a mechanic? Like, do you think mechanics are spoiled now, like oh, flying yeah. in and out? Well, they're and... flying in and out, and then teams are keeping their mechanics. Like, at FMF Honda, I mean, I did a kind of a shitty job with Danny Smith. I screwed up his power valves and stuff. And, and, but I, 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 at FMF Honda, they were just like, hey – we got two guys coming in um, in 99. I think it was, um, I don't know, Voland and somebody else. And Sheik, oh, uh, I, I don't know. No, Sheik was, was there in 98 with us. Whatever. Hilton, Hilton Beatty was running the FMF. He was just like, they're bringing mechanics with them, so you're out. You know what I mean? Like, that was it. Like, I w- it didn't matter what kind of job I did. I was out. Um, uh, well, it was funny because I got the job at FMF Honda. Brent Myron and another guy – named Nicola, were getting in fights with the other team members. One of the other guys accused Brent of pouring sugar in his gas tank when he worked for Brock Sellards. There's a massive drama on the team. They, finally, they fired Brent Myron and this other guy. They hired me. They said to me, who do you want to work for, Kelly, Danny Smith or Jason McCormick? And I'm like, well, shit, Danny Smith, like he's an up-and-coming kid, like big, fast amateur guy. Uh, you know, I could hook up with Danny Smith and we could build this thing and win titles and go to the 250 class and be like champions and be like Norfolk and McGrath. And I want Danny Smith. And they're like, okay. The second day I met Danny, he goes, yeah, I wanted my buddy Mike to work for me. And he's probably going to work for me next year. (laughs) And I'm just like, wow. Okay. Well, so much for the McGrath Norfolk dream here. Um, you know, and, and, and that Mike was Mike Williamson. Funny how that works out. Who's now no factory kidding. Yeah, Mike Williamson worked for NCY, and there were big Danny Smith sponsors, and Mike and Danny were buddies, and Mike couldn't get out of work or whatever, didn't want to do it at FMF Honda. And it's probably a good move, by the way. Pingree can attest to that. And so, the, you know, Danny Smith was just like, yeah, my buddy Mike, I want my buddy Mike to do it, and he's going to do it for me next year. All righty then. Cool. Thanks, Danny. Um, <laughs> yeah, way to, way to set the tone for yeah, you know, yeah. whole year. And, and then I proceeded to screw up his bike a few times, too. So, um, um, which didn't make his dad rusty too pumped on me, but anyways, um, um, yeah, so that's up until like Chaparral and Ferry, I always was struggling for a job trying to find my place, you know, but mechanics back then, I mean, I, I drove the truck for Birdwell and for Nick way. I did the suspension during the week, oil changes. I did the motors. I grocery shopped. I watched the box van. I maintained the box van, um, you know, I lived on the road. It was way, way harder. I hate to sound like uphill to school both ways, you know, like like some old guys. But it truly was much harder paying to be a mechanic back then. It really was. I think maintaining the box van sums that up. Yeah, I mean, it was. And, and also, too, even at Yamaha, when I was a factory Yamaha guy, we were the only team, factory team, doing our motors, the mechanics were, and changing tires at the races. Like, we would look at these other guys who had motor guys building their motors during the week, four strokes. I mean, they took a little more time, and you had to know what you were doing. 
And then Yamaha refused to let Bridgestone change our tires for him because Keith McCarty, you know, back in the day, when he worked for Bob Hanna, he changed 14 tires every day, still won all these titles. And so he refused to let us get our tires changed for us. And, um, yeah, and so we were like the only guys doing all that. It was kind of gnarly for back then. I, I had more fun in a box fan, though. I think when everything went to semis, it, it lost something. You know, you're packed in with all these other right. guys and their families, and right. I don't know. I, I had a lot of fun the years like when Todd Brown and I were in a box fan, or Sean Ulikowski, yeah, me and oh, RL. Yeah, those yeah. were fun years. Me and Jason Fournette traveled together a lot, and we had we have some stories that will remain, you know, stories uh, <laughs> that were just. I mean, we just had some really good times. Kenny Watson was telling me that. Not Berluti, but his other mechanic last year. I mean, he called his, he called Watson up in a fit of rage because Watson had a two-hour layover for him at, at some some airport. And Kenny's just like, bro, I had a 24-hour layover in a box van for many years, you know. So, uh, uh, and he's got a, he's got a point. He's got a point, you know. I mean, there was a lot of stuff different way. Remember, paying like during the week, you'd find places to ride and you'd be riding all together, and then yeah, but that was no, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I almost, if I was a mechanic or even a rider, like I'm, that might even, it might be more fun that way. If you didn't have a family or kids or any reason to go home, it's almost more fun to stay on the road. Like some of our best stories are, you know, when I stayed with you, Lukowski in New Jersey and he, you know, yeah. we went with ghetto man. He took me to New York city. You guys remember ghetto man? <laughs> no, he took us. No. You don't remember ghetto man from Moto triple X, the black dude. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ghetto Man. Ghetto Man. Right. Uh, what's his name? Cos. You know who I'm talking about? I just know Ghetto Man. I know he's a real uh, person. Well, yeah. He's the coolest dude. He's so stinking cool. And he took us down to New York City one one afternoon, and his buddy owned this Italian ice shop. Oh, Mike and Jody? Doing that. Then. Mike, huh? Mike and Jody? Italian ice? I don't know. I don't know. They had a place in Canyon Lake? No, no, no. This is in Jersey. No, I know, but they had a place half the year in Canyon Lake in the winter? Mike and Jody? No? Mike Race? I don't know, man. I think these were Jersey folks. No, they, they, yeah, they're Jersey folks, but I I, I bet you it's the same people that I stayed with. Birdwell knew them. And I drove the guy's Viper. He let me drive his Viper. I stalled it a bunch because I couldn't couldn't figure it out. It was too fast Uh. for these roads. And then the guy lived right on Tom's River, like right on the river. And Birdwell was such an outdoorsman, he insisted that him and I sleep on in sleeping bags on the wood patio. And I'm like, bro, you can be a, a woodsman. I'm going inside on the couch, and you wouldn't let me do it. You know, I'm, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm the mechanic, so I'll, just, I'll sleep on the wood. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, okay. No, those times were good, no doubt about it. They were they were different, man. Um, all right, well, it's 11:37 where Weege is, and he's got a long drive tomorrow, so. Yeah. Um, Way to put in the hours, Weege. Yeah, good job, Weege. My entire work day tomorrow is going to be driving. How is that efficient? How is that good for the... Why don't you fly? Uh, this meeting yeah. was announced uh, today at about noon. Ah. <laughs> That's the way. I'm just saying, uh. I know we've all worked on the, for the magazine. You have no idea what the structure of the magazine is compared to when you have meetings on the GNCC side. You know, there there's a, no one of the worst, one of the, the worst sequels of all time is Godfather three, but there's a scene in there with, with Al Pacino 
he's trying to be respectable. You know, he had he was in the mob. His dad was a mob leader, and he was a mob leader. And he's trying to be respectable, and but somebody's plan, trying to kill him for some for some reason. And he and he says an iconic line where every time I try to get out, they pull me back in. And Weej, I oh. can't help but think that is you and GNCC. Oh, I've used it many times. Every time I've you try to get out of G, they pull you back in. Yeah, you will, you've times. never been able to separate yourself from GNCC, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, all it, you're right. It just the, the gap gets longer. You know, it used to be like, you know, a day or a week. Now it's several months. But I'm not able to go a year, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, no chance. I mean, I'm not going to complain. The meetings in Morgantown, if I hadn't choose to move out of the town, it wouldn't be a big deal. So that's why it becomes a big deal. So that's on me. But uh, that doesn't mean I'm pumped on driving six hours tomorrow just to drive six hours back, that's for sure. You doing it one day? Yeah. Meeting there? I'm going to try to do as little as I can. I mean, I really don't even know. It's, it's a meeting just about how we're going to do the TV shows next year. So, I mean, how long can it be? An hour or two? I mean, it's not going to be eight hours. You're driving six hours for possibly an hour meeting. Yeah, Why I can't you just so. be on the phone? Why can't they do a phone? There's these things called uh, free co- – uh, um, uh, what are they? Where you, where you can set up video on your computer. Um, Go to meeting.com. I, I, if you have to ask, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> That's like it, – it's like I, I feel like this is proving the point. Like, see why it doesn't work? See why it doesn't work not being in the office? See? See? Because you yeah. have to be here. Right, right. That, that's the whole, like, that defeats the purpose of having the meeting if I don't have to go to the meeting. Right, right, right. And, and you're like, all right, cool, I'll drive. See you there. I don't want right. to, you know, the last right. thing I want, okay, they've asked me to come up one day all year, so. All right. going to do it, as dumb as it sounds. Because I just put it the other way around. We're asking you to come up here for one day, seriously, and you got a problem with that? So, right. Okay. Fair enough. Now, well, now I'll talk to you guys in about. I'll talk to you in twelve hours when we have our editorial meeting. How's that? That's my goal to be there in the office for that editorial meeting. <laughs> what time <laughs> is that editorial meeting at? Eleven out here, okay? Eleven, yeah. Eleven our time, Ping. Yeah, yeah. Brian scared me with that email. He said, "Bring one feature idea." I, I, besides a feature on Tim Ferry, I don't have much right now. I know. He puts some pressure out. I know. It's like it's like there's a little check mark. Did Ping bring an idea? Check or X? You know what I mean? Did you do you feel like he was a like a, a middle school teacher and just gave you an assignment? Yeah. And you, you're yeah. you're at home going, oh man, I don't I have been, one. I don't have one. I've been racking my brain for one. I keep flashing back to Timmy, but I I know that that's not going to work and it's not going to fly. <laughs> but yeah, I got to do something. Uh, all right, guys. Well, hey, thanks for doing. Uh, the btosports.com racer x podcast on a, a really a bunch of subjects and uh always a good time talking to you guys have a safe drive why and uh and we'll talk to you soon all right <laughs> see ya see ya thanks for listening to this episode of the steve mathis show search pulp mx in the itunes store to find the more than 200 episode archive or get the pulp mx app for your iphone for the complete pulp mx fix